to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. In this episode, I am going to be beginning a series, a short series, looking at Dick's 1959 novel, Time Out of Joint. Well, this novel is one of Dick's greatest, really, and certainly one of the standout works of 1959. It's 1959... It's, it's kind of the beginning of a slow phase in, in Dick's career. A lot of the stories he had written back in 52, 53, 54 had been published, and he kind of ran out of short stories to be published, and he started moving towards novels, and his output slows down a little bit. In 1958, he only published one thing, the story Null Ol. And in 1959, he published this novel and four, four short stories, and those short stories were all written in previous years so there were like um backlogs uh, with his agent so it's it's a relatively um slow period of time in, in dick's career but he's really his works are getting better they're getting richer and especially his novels he really figured out how to write his style of novels like as i talked about in the previous episodes in this podcast dick's earliest efforts at writing novels and this includes his first four published novels, The World Jones Made, Solar Lottery, The Man Who Japed, and then some of the ones he didn't publish but would publish in 1960, like Dr. Futurity and what was the other one? Vulcan's Hammer. These are stories that really deal with political dystopias and... He's very creative, I think, with political dystopias. He really gets out of this Orwellian model of what a dystopia will look like. But nevertheless, that's not really what he excels at. He, It's really when he wrote these novels like The Cosmic Puppets, Time Out of Joint, and Eye in the Sky, and then eventually this is all capstoned in The Man in the High Castle, where he starts to explore reality and this is one of the things he's most well known for and time out of joint is is a simply a brilliant novel and it actually combines a lot of themes he's been playing with it talks about work it talks about the frontier it has a lot there about suburban life and it's it's actually got some dystopian elements in it as well and it it has a lot about marriage and kind of the manufactured marriage, especially in, in the suburban context is here too. So it's just a really, really rich novel. I'm not, I, I mean, there's a general spoiler with this whole podcast, of course, but I, this is a novel that really the mysteries unfold as you go deeper and deeper into it. There's a lot you don't know when you first start reading this novel. And even when you're two thirds through or even three quarters of the way through, there's a lot you don't know. It's not really till the final chapters that the whole picture is unveiled. So it's it's kind of a slow burn and it's revealed to you bit by bit. And what you think is going on changes under you. And as time, you know, as, as things move along. So it's really well constructed. And when, But it's a novel that when you go back and you read it from the beginning, after having looked at it, you go back and you, and you check out the clues, 
like all the clues were there. Everything was there revealing what's going on in the story. So it's not surprising when you come back and read it. Um, now, I, of course, this book work has been often compared to the movie, what was it called? Um, the Truman Show. And the reason why is because this idea of having a false reality in a quaint suburban kind of 1950s community is in both of, of the works. But they're very divergent in how they're presented, what it is about, the the over the reality behind the scenes is completely different in the two novels. So I don't really like this this comparison. In the Truman Show, it's just a entertainment, it's a reality show. In Time of Joint, it's much more epic. I mean, actually, what's going on is life and death and and cosmic in its ramifications. And again, that's not something that's fully explored until you get to the or it's not revealed till you get to the final chapters of this book. So anyways, um, let me just try to jump into this as much as I can. Um, I'll, I'll talk about the first three chapters today, and I'll probably look at three chapters an episode. So I, I plan to use do five episodes in this one. I, I thought my series on Eye in the Sky maybe went a little bit too long. So I'll, I'll, I'll shrink it down to five. I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to do these novels. And some novels just maybe need a little bit more thought to them. I, I don't know um, the best way. I found myself repeating myself a lot in that series on Eye in the Sky. So um, I might I might go for a shorter series this time. We'll see. But for now, I'm just going to look at the first three chapters. So our setting is a suburban community in the 1950s. And really what happens in these first three chapters is we meet the characters. And like Eye in the Sky, it's a very character-driven story. Um, and like I in the Sky, we meet characters in one way and we reveal their true nature later on as as the story goes goes on. And the, in the same in the same way, we have like one character who is presented as kind of authentic and real and our center of our attention. And I in the Sky, it was Hamilton. In this novel, it's Regal Gum. The other characters, though, are pretty much all false fronts. But nevertheless, it's a very character-driven story, and some of these characters are quite striking and memorable. The plot, though, is much more epic because what happens in the sky is all within the heads of eight people. Time out of joint really deals with the fate of the entire human race. So as the novel opens, we're in a typical American grocery store. Uh, our One of our main characters is Victor or Vic Nielsen. He's working on the grocery store stocking shelves. His wife, Margot, comes to visit and they have various discussions. It's kind of a fascinating cold opening to this novel. Because our main character is not here and nothing really happens in this first part of the story. It's just talking. The discussions they have in the grocery store are all pretty banal. They, you know, maybe this is what's talked about in grocery stores during the day, especially in the 1950s. You know, I've never really, not, not, I don't want to say never, but not often do I talk to people at grocery stores unless it's the, at the checkout line. But, you know, maybe people have these, had these kind of chit chats in the 50s. They talk about income tax because that's income tax season. They talk about party politics, local police, local city politics, the safety of children, the park that's being built, the ongoing recession. And they also talk about things like who has the best dentist and what dentist you go to. And, and so it's all pretty silly stuff. Um, but one of the more interesting comments is made by Liz. Now, Liz is just a worker there. But she announces that she's a Republican, despite having come from the South. And she's challenged on this. She said, well, I thought all Southerners were Democrats. 
And she says, well, no, now I live in the North, and so I'm a Republican. So she's totally malleable, changing her politics based on place she lives in. And so she's one of our first characters we're introduced to in which this concept of a false front or a malleable reality or a malleable existence or liquid, you know, way of looking at the world is presented, right? Something as important to someone's identity as political parties, you think that's something that you take with you when you go to a new place. But no, she becomes a Republican when she gets to the suburbs. And this is actually something that really happens historically. We can actually watch demographics and voting trends and things. And we see that people who move from cities to suburbs or move from the south to the north do switch their political loyalties. Based on you know where they live and where one lives is a pretty good guess of how they're going to vote. Political scientists know this very well. Yeah, I mean, there's not that many big surprises on elections days, usually. Polls and political scientists usually have a good idea of how things are going to turn out. And a lot of it's based on the fact that we can kind of associate place and racial identity and income with uh, voting tendencies. All right, so after these conversations, Vic goes across the street to see J Jake Burns, Jack Burns. He's, he works at the shoe store, and they, they have a coffee together. And they talk about more banalities. They talk about the Book of the Month Club. And strangely, the characters don't seem to know Uncle Tom's Cabin. And this is maybe the first weird thing, the outright weird thing in the novel. I mean, first they talk about Toynbee, which was a previous Book of the Month Club selection. And then... They talk about uh, Uncle Tom's cabin, and let's let's just look at this briefly. He says, or this is what Dick writes. His lips moving, Jack read the title of the current Book of the Month selection. A historical novel, he said, about the South, Civil War times. They always push that stuff. Don't these old ladies who belong to the club get tired of reading that over and over again? As yet, Vic hadn't had a chance to inspect the brochure. I don't always get what they have, he explained. The current book was called Uncle Tom's Cabin by an author he had never heard of, Harriet Beecher Stowe. The brochure praised the book as a daring expose of the slave trade in pre-Civil War Kentucky, an honest document of the sordid, outrageous practices committed against hapless Negro girls. Wow, Jack said. Hey, maybe I'd like that. Now, okay, what's weird about this? Well, one we weird thing is that these characters never heard of Harry Peter Stowe or Uncle Tom's Cabin. That, that's just an impossibility to anyone raised in the United States in the 20th century. This novel is, was taught, is taught in literature classes. It's taught about in history classes. It's something everyone knows. And it's being sold in a Brooklyn Book of the Month Club, which sells new novels. So... It's, it's a bizarre moment. But this is the first really super weird thing in, in the story. So that evening, we meet Margot's brother, Ragel Gum. And he's our main character. And he's living with the Nielsens. So he's living with his, his brother-in-law and his sister. There's also in the family Margot's son, Sammy, who has a pretty good relationship with Ragel Gum because they share some interest in technology. But he's out playing despite it being near dinner time and he's supposed to get back. We learn that Ragel makes his living by winning prizes in a series of newspaper contests, like a daily newspaper contest. Now, each day, he, he takes each day's puzzle, he studies the patterns, he looks at clues, and he determines where the next little green man will appear. So that's the puzzle. It's basically, like, I think hundreds or even over a thousand squares. And he has to put, like, the time and the square that the little green man will appear. And then, you know, there's supposed to be patterns or something. And, Ragel Gum 
knows these patterns. And because of that, he's won pretty much every day for two years. Now, the newspaper says he's the constant winner for over two years. In reality, it's more complicated than that. And we'll talk about it in a bit. But basically, it's a large grid, and he has to identify the time and the right square. And this takes him most of every day because he has to study past entries. He has to say clues. But he's got a method for figuring this out. And he's won consistently for a very, very long time. And in fact, he's got like boxes and boxes of these old newspaper accounts and his old studies and things. It's, it's like a full-time job essentially for him. And he makes a decent income. It's not a huge income, but he makes a decent income that certainly supports his life since he doesn't really pay rent. Sammy comes back and then Margo makes a sandwich for Regal and the Nielsens go out to the grocery store to pick up Vic. Now, the really only odd thing in this world so far, except for Uncle Tom's Cabin, is the fact that Regal seems to constantly win what seems it must almost be a guessing contest. But if he's won consistently, it cannot be a guessing contest. So, I mean, someone, how can someone guess right again and again? This method must have some logic to it. But even Regal is not really able to tell us what that method is. He just insists that it is there, and he's very defensive when people question if what he really does is work or not. So a little bit later in the night, they're all back at the house, Vic's home, and the Blacks come over to visit. Now, these are a young couple. Bill Black is very focused on his image, and he, he presents himself as a very professional figure. They're also very trendy, especially Bill, who embraces all sorts of fads. And his current fad is resistance to the television set. And he actually belittles the Nielsens for keeping a television around. And he's kind of hoity-toity, and he overdresses. Um, Regal, though, assumes with the visit of the Blacks that his night's work is ruined. He does embrace the company, though. He's not like a, a jerk about it. Now, the description of the Blacks is pretty fascinating. Um, he had on his, the quote, he had on his Ivy League clothes cus, customary with him these days. Button-down collar, tight pants, and of course his haircut. The stylist croppings that reminded Regal of nothing so much as army haircuts. Maybe that was his, in, uh, it. An attempt on the part of a sedulous young s sprinters like Bill Black to appear regimented. Part of some colossal machine. And in a sense, they were. They all occupied minus status posts as functionaries of organizations. Bill Black, a case in point, worked for the city in its water department. Every clear day, he set off on a foot, not his car, striding optimistically along in a single-breasted suit, being pulled into shape because his clothes, coat and trousers were so unnaturally and senselessly tight. And, Regal thought, so obsolete. Brief renaissances of the archaic style in men's clothing. Seeing Bill Black legging it by his house in the morning and evening made him feel as if he was watching an old movie. And Black's jerky, two-swift stride added to the impression. Even his voice, Regal thought, speeded up. Too high-pitched, shrill. So... That is Bill Black. Now, his wife, Junie Black, is a young, attractive housewife. And we'll talk more about her a little bit later. Now, Bill Black wants Regal to teach him how to solve the puzzle. And he's mentioned this several times in their relationship, that he, and he's almost insistent. And Regal notices that it's a bit strange that Bill Black wants to learn how to do this because it's not that money, much money. He's got a job, and he doesn't even think he can teach it anyways. Now, they eat lasagna and they chit-chat, and of course, the topic comes back to work. Vic's got the more working-class job. Bill Black got, has the more professional, bureaucratic job, and he deals with the water department. He talks about it as selling water. And then Regal Gum has this non-job of doing newspaper puzzles. And they start to debate 
what if what Raggle does can be called work. And it's actually a pretty powerful statement on the nature of industrial work and where we get how we get happiness out of work and you know if we can get meaning in work. So Black says this. No, I know you put plenty of work into it, but it's creative work. You're your own boss. You can't call that work, like working at a desk somewhere. I work at a desk, Raggle said. But, Black persisted, it's more of a hobby. I don't mean to knock it. A man can work harder on a hobby than down in the office. I know when I'm out in the garage using my power saw, I really sweat at it. But there's a difference. Turning to Vicky, he said, you know what I mean? It's not drudgery. It's what I said. It's creative. And so this is, I think, Dick talking about work, which is something he does a lot in his, in his novels. Um, and I think he does, I've ultimately come to the conclusion that crafting and hobbies are a better foundation for, for happiness. In the sense, he's, he's actually kind of Marxist in his vision of kind of human beings' meaning coming through creativity and, and producing something, something that's taken from us by industrial work and bureaucracies and all that stuff. I mean, it's literally in his very first short story, Stability. Ragel eventually in this conversation takes offense at the suggestion that he's guessing. Now, Dick makes a point here to show, to say that Ragel is not attracted to Junie, despite her being really hot. This is an important issue in the next chapter, but it, it shows a change in Ragel's character. And this is something that we need to think about when we try to understand what to do with Raggle's character is that he's not a very stable figure. He's stable in the fact that he does this th um, this puzzle every day, but in other ways, he's a very liquid person. They settle in to play poker, and Sammy shows them his crystal radio set, which is presented as a novelty. People in this world don't seem to be used radios anymore, so we got another odd thing about this world, and I guess this would be the third or fourth. Uncle Tom's Cabin is one. The whole puzzle is a second another would be i guess bill black not being able to dress himself properly for the time and then and then this that like radios are not used anymore of course in the 1950s everyone had radios in their house we learn a few more important things uh in this chapter this is chapter two by the way one is that Ragel used to during the war world war ii he was stationed in the pacific kind of a weather station and he was there with one other guy so he was a bit of a loner and he learned a lot of his habits and his behavior while being alone in the pacific island now the climax of this chapter again this is chapter two comes when Ragel goes into the bathroom for some medicine because vic appears to have fallen ill or you know lasagna didn't settle in his stomach right and he needs some dramamine so he goes to the bathroom and he pulls feels for the pull chain and i don't know if you remember these i you know i my parents' house still has some of these. They're like the old-fashioned light switches. I mean, we still have them in the basement. They're usually, if you find them now, they're I think they're in, you know, kind of unfinished parts of the house. But, they're you know, those pull pole chains are for the light, that turn on the light. And he can't find it. And later he realizes that they have a switch. And he reports what happened, and they talk about it. Like, in recent years, houses switched, switched from the pole cords to the wall mounts. And, you know, sometimes you have that brain fart, right? And then it's kind of weird. And there'll be other conversations. I think in Chapter 3, Junie and Ragel talk about this too, how sometimes you're climbing and you think there's three steps, but there's only two. And that third step, you kind of fumble. And so this stuff sort of happens. It's a conclusion. 
Now, the next morning, and now we're into chapter three, Ragel is shaving and he hears the newspaper hit the, hit the door. His day's work will soon begin. He reads the news and he comes to the puzzle. Now, there are always clues. He studies them, but he's not really able to connect the pu- clue to the puzzle answers. He thinks there's a kind of an intuitive connection, so he reads them and thinks about them. Really, it seems his solutions come more from the study of past entries, but he does, we do get the clues if, if, you know, if you're interested in, maybe there's something to them, I don't know. The three clues are, a swallow is as great as a mile, a bell told on Tihi. I guess there's just the two clues. And he kind of does word association kind of games to try to get him to a place where maybe these clues have some meaning. Now, Mr. Lowry comes to the door, and he works for the newspaper. And he explains to Raggle that he forgot to rank his answers. So Raggle apparently has a special deal with the newspaper. And that is he can make several answers, six of them, and rank them. And if one is wrong, number one is wrong, number two comes in. And if he gets one of them right, essentially, he wins the prize. And it goes beyond that, too, because it's confessed in this section of the novel that Ragel actually got it wrong eight times in the last two and a half years completely. None of his answers were right. So why do this? Well, it's good for the newspaper because it keeps him winning. He, fix it, he, he fixes his error that of like the six ranked. He ranks the six, gives it back to him. And he's kind of worried and anxious that he almost lost the contest over this stupid mistake. But I think the most important re- realization at this point in the story is that Ragel has been wrong many, several times before. But the newspaper keeps him on as the contest render, w- winner. And, you know, there were scandals about quiz shows and things like that doing this sort of shenanigans to keep someone winning for ratings purposes. Um, but it's not clear why the newspaper does this, except Ragel just assumes they, they need a winner, right? They need a face to go with the contest. Now, they also talk about other things about the contest, like how it can't be random because he couldn't be keeping right if it was completely random. So Raggle suggests that maybe they choose the winner based on their favorite submissions and they choose Raggle all the time. Lowry, although, denies this. So then Raggle goes just immediately, abruptly. He goes to visit Junie Black. Now, we know he normally spends the days working on this, but instead, today, he's going to go visit Junie Black. And he starts to hit on her quite aggressively the minute he runs into her. Of course, Bill Black's off at work. He comments on her sexy clothing. Now, he talks in a kind of intellectual way, in a nerdy way, and his come-ons kind of go past her a little bit. At least apparently. He finally then asks her to go sunbathing in the, at the pool for a while. And the pool is kind of a place where housewives go with their kids during in these summer days. But... He invites her so that they get on their swimsuits and they go to the pool. Junie accepts this this little date. Now, there seems to be some attraction between Junie and Black, at least Junie's way. Where is it? Yeah, quote, having Raggle beside her made her feel peaceful. She had always been attracted to the big burly man, especially to big burly men, especially older ones. To her, Raggle was exactly the right age. And... Look at things he had done, his military career in the Pacific, for instance, and his national fame in a newspaper contest. She liked his bony, grim, scarred face. It was a real man's face with no trace of double chin, no fleshiness. His hair had a bleach quality, white and curled, never combed. He had always, it always struck her that a man who combed his hair was a sissy. Billy spent half an hour in the morning fussing with his hair, although now he had a crew cut that he fussed less, somewhat less. 
She loathed touching crew-cut hair. The stiff bristles remind her of a toothbrush. And Bill fitted perfectly into his narrow-shouldered Ivy League coat. He had virtually no shoulders. The only sport he played was tennis. And that really aroused her animosity. A man wearing white shorts, bobby socks, tennis shoes, a college student at best, as Bill had been when she had met him. And after this, they go into a conversation basically about him being a single man. I think he's in his 30s. You know, in a neighborhood full of housewives, right? And the, the propriety of this is questioned. Now, Raggle continues to flirt and a jet passes by. This seems to be a regular occurrence in this town. Now, after sunbathing a while, though, Raggle tries, <laughs> tries his great pickup line. And this is one of my favorite parts in, this, in the novel, actually. It's so nerdy, it's, it's, it's kind of humorous. He turns to her, he, he thinks about what to say to her as a pickup line, essentially. Um, and he has some word association first because he's just like watching things and making connections. Like I think there's like an ice cream truck and he thinks about the bells and he thinks about the clue for the puzzle and all this stuff. Then he, he thinks like, could I fall in love with, quote, could I fall in love with a little trollopy, gingerly ex-high school girl who's married to an eager beaver type who still prefers a banana split with all the trimmings to a good wine and a good whiskey or even a good dark beer? And he, okay. And then he basically decides, yes, I can. And he turns to her and he says, im Anfang war die Tat. Sorry, I, I don't really have any German. But this is from Faust. And it means in the beginning was the deed. Now, if you've read Faust, Goethe, so it comes, it's like a play off the Bible. So in John, the book of John begins, in the beginning was the word, right? And so Faust thinks, you know, he kind of revises this in his head. He says, no, what's more important is action and will. And so in the beginning was the deed. The deed is what matters. This is actually a pretty hot pickup line, but you know, of course, most, most people won't get it or make the connection. And she replies, just go to hell. And then he tries to explain it to her. And this says, like, I was trying to flirt with you, to make love with you. And she just kind of is very aloof about it and doesn't really comment directly on it. It's just sort of playful flirting. But um, he doesn't seem to have any too much success. But he does just suddenly advance on her and start kissing her. She's still pretty aloof about these turn of events. And he even says that he loves her. The date ends, though, when he goes to a, the soda stand. I don't know why. When I first read this, I was thinking a soda machine, but I don't know if they had soda machines in those days. So the pool has a soda stand, and he goes to the soda stand, and he like puts the money on the counter, and the stand disappears, and the coin like falls to the ground. And what's left behind is this piece of paper with the word soft, like a card, and it just says soft drink stand. I think we get the description of what actually happens here. Yeah. The soft drink stand, quotes, the soft drink stand fell into bits, molecules. He saw the molecules colorless without qualities that made it up. Then he saw through into the space beyond it. He saw the hill beyond the trees, the skies. He saw the soft drink stand go out of existence along with the counterman, the cash register, the big dispenser of orange drink, the taps for Coke and root beer, the ice chests of bottles, the hot dog broiler, the jars of mustard, the shelves of cones, the rows of heavy round metal lids under which were the different ice creams. In its place was a slip of paper. He reached out his hand and took hold of the slip of paper. On it was printing, block letters, soft drink stand. 
And that's how chapter three ends. But Regal Gum says to himself, oh, no, it's happening to me again. So we've known what just happened with the soft drink stand happened to him at some previous point. Yet we as readers weren't privy to that. So I will will leave it at that. That's the first three chapters of Time of Joint. It's it really grabs you. I, I think it's a wonderful beginning to this. What I th- what I think is really one of his great novels. So, anyways, I I hope you enjoy it and read along with me. Um, please leave your own comments and thoughts about this work below. I know there's a lot I didn't fully get to. It's it's rich, to say, it's to say the least. But if, if there's important things I missed, please leave them below. I'd love to um, comment on them. So again, thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next time with part two of my review of Philip Dick's Time Out of Joint. my tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving